Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, we read, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. In the book of Romans, Paul has argued the universal guilt of all people, both Jew and Gentile. This is followed by divine redemption in the person of Jesus, then faith's justification, and then he moves on to the subject of sanctification. And if we're saved by grace through faith, if we're justified by faith, now Paul is going to introduce the idea about sanctification. There's some There's something really is that's sadder than the tears of a clown. And that's the tears of the person who tries to live the regenerate life without regeneration. Who tries to live the spirit life without the spirit. Who tries to live life in Christ but doesn't even know Christ. It was the famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher who challenged That a human being can't leave chapter 7 of Romans and enter chapter 8 except by one word. And that's Christ. The Holy Spirit declared us not guilty in chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. And now he says that we have new life in verses 5 through 17. Not guilty is the promise that there will be no future judgment which results in eternal separation from God for the true child of God. New life means we have full, free forgiveness in verses 6 through 8. We are free from defeat, which means no obligation to the flesh or the old nature 
or all that we are apart from Christ. It's important that you remember that. Remember how we defined the meaning of the word flesh. It isn't the physical bones and muscles that hang on you. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. We are now in Christ. And so, if that's the case, we don't have to be controlled by sinful behavior or addictive behavior. We're in Christ. We will ultimately be justified, accepted, forgiven. We're in the ongoing process of sanctification, which means that we're moving ever closer to being molded, shaped into the image of God in Christ in the sense of sanctification will eventually lead to glorification, not in this life, but in the next. We're joined to Christ. We belong to God. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And for all of those reasons, we are no longer under obligation to the old sinful nature. By the way, the New Living Translation translates verse 12, So dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Unquote. So Paul will describe life. Life at three levels. And then Paul will urge the Roman believers to live life at the highest level. The lowest level, by the way, is life apart from Jesus. The next level is life in Christ. But there is another level. Christians aren't to remain content with just simply the mere possession of the Holy Spirit. We are to allow the Holy Spirit to possess us. Now when you stop and you think about that, that might sound a little bit strange. It might even sound a little bit creepy to allow a strange power or a strange person. Doesn't sound all that attractive, but the Holy Spirit isn't a strange power and the Holy Spirit isn't a strange person. But the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. And when we're led and we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, we're going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the power that God has given us in order to live our lives for Jesus. The key scripture in understanding this section is found in verse 9 where it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so when people ask me the question, What does it mean to be saved? Part of the answer has to be not just simply belief in Jesus and submission to Jesus, although that's certainly a part of it, but it is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, by definition, doesn't belong to Christ and cannot have life. 
It says in John 5, 26, for as the father has life in and of himself, he is granted the son to have life and in and of himself. And so the Bible speaks of life at least fundamentally on two different levels. There is human life. There is life that is animated, but then there is a supernatural life that's found in God and Christ. And so it begins in verse 5. The dead do not have the spirit. That's life on the lowest level. And by the dead, I mean those people who are dead in trespasses and sins. Those people who are disconnected from God. Those people who are disconnected from life. Many years ago, there was a horrible movie about a little boy who saw dead people. I unfortunately went and saw the movie. And of course, after seeing the movie, and I hope if, if you, I guess if you've never seen the movie, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, just hold your ears for a second. Just cut, if you plan on seeing the movie, you need to shut your ears right at this moment because... I'm going to sort of give it away. In this little movie, this young boy sees dead people. And of course, he is being treated by a therapist in order to deal with his problem. And when you come to the end of the movie, you discover that the therapist himself is a dead person. Now, here is the deal. In the Bible, the Bible speaks of two kinds of people. Those who have life because they are connected to God. And those who do not have life. Those who are disconnected from God. And so when Paul writes, for those who live according to the flesh. Remember, the flesh means everything that you are apart from Christ. And we live in a world where literally billions of people walk around living life, but they are disconnected from God and they are disconnected from Christ. The Bible refers to those people as dead people. So Paul will contrast the life of the flesh with the life of the spirit. In the New Living Translation, again, the verse, verse 5, reads this way. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the spirit. So when Paul is speaking about the fleshly mind, what is he talking about? Again, Kenneth Wiest writes, quote, For those who are habitually dominated by the flesh, they put their mind on the things of the flesh, unquote. In other words, the fleshly person, the person who's disconnected from God, disconnected from Christ, the preoccupation of their thinking is the thoughts apart from Christ, apart from God, apart from the Bible, apart from salvation. The Greek verb for mind is phronine. It incorporates two big ideas that's different from our word. It means the idea of thinking, but it also includes the concept of exercising the will. In other words, what Paul is talking about is 
the sum and the substance of the things that preoccupy your thinking and then the things that you do as you think about the things that you're thinking about. Robert Mounts writes, quote, People's decisions about how they intend to live determines how they think about things. Moral choice precedes and determines intellectual orientation. People do not think themselves into the way they act, but act them act themselves into the way that they think. I'm going to repeat that. People do not think themselves into the way they act, but act themselves into the way that they think. He writes, ethical decision more than misguided reason lies at the heart of error. In other words, it's his way of thinking that what you love, what you think about, what preoccupies you, what you become invested in, what you become preoccupied with begins to inform your thinking and inform your behavior. The Bible teaches that the sinner loves darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We have a word for that. It's a mindset or a worldview. And remember, your worldview is the sum and the substance of everything that you think about and how you use your thoughts to explain the world in which you live. Why is the world the way that it is? What are the answers to the ultimate questions of life? The unbeliever and the make-believer have a mindset that is focused on sin and self-indulgence. What do, the, what do the unbeliever think about? What does the unbeliever think about? Now again, if you are listening to my voice, you fall into the category of believer or unbeliever. Believer, perhaps there's two categories of the unbeliever, the make-believer and the unbeliever. What does the unbeliever think about? For some of you, you don't have to go that far back in your past to answer that question. Before you became a Christian, before you loved Christ, before you decided that you were going to know Jesus and love Jesus, you heard the gospel, you responded to the gospel, and you understood that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, and you began to read the Bible, and you began to read and understand what it means to know and love and walk with Jesus. What was your life before that? What did you think about? I'm going to suggest it could be broken down into three simple categories, the things you used to think about. Me, myself, and I. That's the trinity of the unbeliever. Paul invites us to consider two classes of people. Those who think after the flesh and those who think after the spirit. But remember when Paul is inviting you to consider this. He's not just talking about the things that you think about. But the things you actually wind up doing. Paul writes that you will serve the principles of the old life or you will serve the principles of the new life. You will walk in the power of the spirit or you will walk disconnected from the spirit. And look what it says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The two classes of people the spiritually minded and the carnally minded are faced with two issues. The issue of carnality and the issue of spirituality. Now here, remember about our terms. 
Here, carnality means thinking and acting apart from Christ. Spiritual, spirituality means thinking and acting connected to Christ. You see, most people in our culture and our society, when they use the term spiritual, that's not what they mean. As a matter of fact, you probably know people who would describe themselves as, well, I'm a spiritual person. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I am a person who is preoccupied with the invisible rather than the visible. With the intangible rather than the tangible. With the mystical and the supernatural rather than the natural. But that's not what Paul has in mind. He's not talking mysticism and he's not talking about something that's disconnected from Christ. To be carnally minded is to think and dwell in the environment and the occupation of the natural man. It is to mind the flesh. And of course, that's temporal. Remember that everything that you are apart from Christ, disconnected from Christ, disconnected from the gospel, is subject to decay and death. One of the characteristics of the carnal mind is moral and spiritual death. The spiritual mind is life and peace. Living in the flesh results in dying in the flesh. Living in the spirit results in peace. By the way, in nature there is an interesting phenomenon. It's called dwarfism. There are dwarf trees. There are dwarf dogs. There once even existed a species of elephant in the South Pacific Islands that were hunted to extinction. In Japan, they carefully cultivate a certain type of tree. Who remembers what it's called? The bonsai tree. Do you know how you make a bonsai tree? You have to deprive it of its normal environment. You have to de- deprive it of its normal nutrients. Different animal species are sometimes called toy or dwarf, if you will. And the same is true of the soul. You sh- can shrink the soul and shrink it and shrink it and shrink it until it barely resembles a soul. For the Christian, for the person who is born again, for the person who has been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are invited into a new environment. An environment where there is nutrients. For the Christian, the nutrient includes worship. It includes discipleship. It includes growing in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. The nutrients of the Christian are all of the things that make for the life of God and the life of Christ and the life of the Spirit. And for the Christian, your stature lies with you. You participate in the kind of life that you're going to have. But for the unbeliever... Life at the lowest level is disconnected from God and disconnected from Christ and disconnected from hope and peace and joy because it's a life that excludes Christ. And so it says, 
you face a future that is absent hope. Read in verse 6 again. For to be carnally minded is death. Death isn't a, isn't a hopeful future. In verse 7 it says, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, if living at the lowest level means that your thoughts and your thinking are thoughts and thinking that exclude Jesus, that they, they also exclude hope. It also means that you're fighting against God. Look what it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The word enmity means hostility. Human beings may be curious about God, but the carnal-minded, Paul writes, are hostile to the God of the Bible. You might even know people who claim that they're curious about God. But when you ask, or when they say that, I'm curious about God. I want to know what kind of a God is God. I want to know what kind of God the Bible reveals. When they're talking about God, it's usually not the God of the Bible. It's not the uncreated creator. It is not the God who reveals himself in time and space and in the, in the person of Jesus. Human beings may be curious about God, but Paul writes to be carnally minded. Remember what I said. This is thinking apart from Christ. They're hostile to God. It's not natural to love God. It's not natural to submit to God. The natural, unregenerate, unbeliever may claim to believe in God. They may even claim to love God. But the proof is in the pudding. And the loving is... In the believing, and doing, and submitting. In the Bible and in the New Testament, the proof of love of God is love of Christ. This is why John would write in 1 John, He who has the Father has the Son, but he who does not have the Father does not have the Son or we, we might put it differently. He who does not have the Son does neither has the Father or the Son. It's natural. It's natural. It's natural for human beings to want to worship something or someone. It's natural. We are created in such a way that there's something about us that wants in a rational and intelligent way to both respect and even worship a power that is higher than ourself. But most human beings go into the default mode and they wind up worshiping themselves, their pleasure, their thinking of all that they want. Love of God is foreign until we have the love of God flowing through our spiritual veins. And how is that even possible? Well, guess what? Paul is making the point that that's possible because of knowing and loving Christ. In verse 8 it says, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, I want you to think it through. So then those who are in the flesh. Who are in the flesh? Everyone is apart from Christ. Who is in the flesh? Everyone living, thinking, believing, behaving, and acting apart from Christ 
cannot please God. Think about what Paul has said. The carnal mind is death, verse 6. The carnal mind is hostile to the God of the Bible, verse 7. The carnal mind lives in a constant state of not just hostility, but futility. In what way? Because the carnal mind is at war against God and his law. Why? Because they've already defined the terms of the engagement. Remember what the war is all about. Human beings are sinners in need of a savior. For the person who says, I don't want a savior. Or if I want a savior, I want it to be reason, or I want it to be science, or I want it to be my mind, or I want it to be my own rational thinking, or I want it to be my government, or I want it to be my religion, or I want it to be my worldview. That's what I want to save me. Paul writes, therefore, they cannot please God. Read it again in verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The human being can be carnal. Even what you and I might call spiritual or religious, if we pervert the word spiritual and religious. But not spiritual and religious according to the way the Bible uses the term. The carnal man, the carnal woman can be educated, they can be cultured, and they can even be correct about some things. Even maybe about most things. But they can't please God. The carnal man or the carnal woman can be cultured and correct. They can be courageous and compassionate. They can be caring. But they're still displeasing to God. Really the question that each and every one of you should ask when you come to verse 8 is. What then will please God? What is it that will in fact be pleasing instead of displeasing? How in the world can a human being be pleasing to God? And Paul gives us a clue elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21. Paul wrote, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Especially when you think about people who hate preaching. Can you imagine how that makes me feel? Can you imagine that if you are a preacher and the very first thing someone says to you is, I hate preachers and preaching. I don't want to be preached at. And I think, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21, Paul wrote, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe that God would use something as foolish as a preacher and preaching to present to people the possibility that sin can be forgiven and that hope can be established and that you can have a right relationship with God. All of a sudden now, I'm hoping you're warming up to the idea of preaching. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, but without faith, but without faith, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
Wait a minute. So it pleases God to preach the gospel. It pleases God that people believe the gospel. It pleases God that those who come to him believe that he really is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It's pleasing to God for people to say, I think that you're there and I think that you might care about me. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 20 it says, Children, obey your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to God. What? Paul writes, God is pleased when parents tell their children what God has said about the way they should act. And the way that they should conduct themselves. And listen carefully. That believing God pleases him. And obeying God pleases him. Remember the Bible gives us three kinds of human being. The natural man. The carnal man. And the spiritual man. The natural man is made in the image of God. The natural man has all the inherent dignities and values associated as a creature created by God. And that's why we, even as Christians, we look at the unbeliever and we look at the make-believer and we understand and believe that there is an inherent dignity about being human. And because there's an inherent dignity about being human, we value life. We value all life. We value all life, even unbelieving life. Of course we do. Because remember there, but by the grace of God, we're each and every one of you. The carnal man is different from the natural man in the sense that it is regeneration. Being born again. That separates the natural man and at least at this point the spiritual man. The natural man is fallen, depraved, flawed. The natural man is in Adam and not in Christ. In Adam we are unable either to appreciate or appropriate the things of the spirit. Remember Paul will write that they are spiritual and spiritually discerned. The person who has never experienced the new birth, the person who has never come to Christ, is the natural man. Paul said, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And that's why the natural man, the unregenerate man, the person who's disconnected from God, disconnected from Christ, they can pick up the Bible, they can read it all day, they can find it interesting and confusing. But rarely will they find it valuable, helpful. The carnal man, though regenerate and possessing the resource of the Holy Spirit, continues to exercise thinking and living that is similar to the unregenerate. The carnal man allows thinking and carnal living to dominate their lives. You see, it's possible... To be a person who knows God and who knows Christ, but you still allow a detachment to take place. 
Because your thinking is informed not by the Bible and not by the Spirit of God, but by the things of this world. Roy Lauren describes the per- this person as having a Savior, but not a Lord. That the carnal Christian still lives between Passover and Pentecost. He lives on the right side of the cross, but he lives on the wrong side of the throne. He has life, but not liberty. He's out of Egypt, but he's failed to enter into the promised land. The spiritual man is both regenerate, that means saved by Jesus, and surrendered. The spiritual man is saved and surrendered. The spiritual man is consecrated and dedicated. The spiritual man desires life in Christ and the life that comes from Christ. The spiritual man refuses the dictates and the desires of the flesh and walks in the realm of the spirit. The spiritual man walks in the spirit. And so the image of Jesus is formed and the character begins to reflect the character of Christ. When I think about it, I I think of the Italian sculptor Michelangelo. Do you remember he would work on his precious stone masterpieces? He would see a block of marble. He would consider the way the grains run. He would look at the marble and he would cry out. He would say that there's an angel trapped inside. Michelangelo would say, while the marble wastes, The image grows. That's what he would do. He would take his hammer and he would take his chisel and he would go to work and the chips would fly. And as the chips flew, all of a sudden the image inside the stone would seemingly come to life. So it is with the spiritual man who walks in the spirit. The image of Jesus is formed. We are the marble. Christ is the image. This is what I think John the Baptist meant when he said that he must increase and we must decrease. And so we'll talk about life at a different level. The living have the spirit. Look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. But you are not in the flesh. Remember everything apart from Christ. But you are in the spirit. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're saved because you've been born again. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are born again, the spirit of God does dwell in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. This is the line of demarcation. The line of demarcation isn't whether or not you go to church. The line of demarcation isn't a line between Catholicism and Protestantism. It isn't a line that's separated between Baptists and Presbyterians. It isn't a line between liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity. It is a line that is drawn in the sand that speaks of the presence or the absence of the person of Jesus and the, and the presence or the absence of the Spirit of God. This is why John will write in 1 John, He who has the Father has the Son. This is why the Bible teaches over and over and over again that Christianity doesn't just simply consist of a set of essential, of essential principles that place you in the family of God. There is a biology involved, a spiritual biology 
You see, there are two things that will give life to a human being. Genetics and environment. You can have a full complement of DNA. But unless you're placed in the right environment, you won't grow. God in his wisdom, God in his wisdom places little children in the wombs, the bellies of their mothers. And with a full complement of DNA, they grow, they mature. There is an amniotic environment that promotes growth. Do you know what the difference between you and a person in the womb is? Time and nutrition. That's the only difference. Time and nutrition. And so the Holy Spirit places you into an environment where you can grow. We walk either in the flesh or the spirit, verse 4, two spheres of life. The Holy Spirit is present in us, in verse 9. Paul means that the presence of the Holy Spirit means that you are in a new state and a new sphere of existence. One paraphrase puts it, quote, You, however, are not controlled by your animal nature. You are controlled by the Spirit of God. If God's Spirit really has found a home inside of you. Has the Holy Spirit found a home inside of you? Who controls whether or not you will be controlled? By the fallen nature or God's Holy Spirit? You see, let me be blunt. The unbeliever only has two choices in everything that they do. To do what's right or to do what's wrong. The believer only has two choices. But it's not about right and wrong. It's about walking in the Spirit or not walking in the Spirit. That's what each and every choice boils down to. Will I walk in the Spirit or will I walk apart from the Spirit? And here Paul says, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit cannot in all honesty claim to be a Christian. I want you to note that. This doesn't simply mean that you are pressured by the Holy Spirit or persuaded by the Holy Spirit or, or that you are subject to some invisible divine essence, some supernatural essence that's influencing you. The Bible doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit that way. The Holy Spirit isn't an influence that marks your life. The Holy Spirit is a person who leads you and guides you. And the reason why we know that the Holy Spirit is a person is because the Holy Spirit has all of the attributes of a person. The Holy Spirit has an identity. The Holy Spirit can speak. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Christianity is theology. But Christian faith and Christian life is more than theology. The Spirit is the author and the agent of life. And so Christianity must be more than creeds and confessions. But don't get me wrong. I'm not being dismissive of creeds and confessions. But Christianity is life. 
It's life in the Father. It's life in the Son. And life in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 10, look what it says. And if Christ is in you, the the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I want you to understand what you're reading. In verse 10, when it says, and if Christ is in you, remember in verse 1, all the way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember when we looked at that particular passage of scripture, I used the analogy of Noah and the ark. You're either in the ark or you're not in the ark. In verse 1, you are in Christ. In verse 10, Christ is in you. This is amazing. In verse 1, it was about position. In verse 10, it's about possession. Paul speaks of the possessive experience of knowing him. Roy Lauren writes, quote, Christ's presence in us does not now change the chemistry of our body. You can't go to the lab and take a blood test and go, oh, dude, I'm going I'm to see if you're in Christ or, and if Christ's in you. I'm going to see if there's some supernatural presence inside of your bloodstream. That's not what's happening. It doesn't cancel the primeval sentence of death on your body. The soul that sins, it will surely die. The penalty of sin may remain physically, but the power of sin is gone because we have the indwelling Christ who has brought life to our spirit. We, therefore, as Christians... The new and the higher incentive of life on the new and the higher plane of the spiritual is contrasted and compared using human living as the example. Paul would have been horrified at the thought that God is simply a philosophical or a theological construct meant to influence people to live above their animal nature. Paul would have been horrified if someone said, you mean we're supposed to look at Jesus and just simply imitate his life? Paul would have said, you can't do that. That's not going to be helpful to you. In order for you to change, in order for you to be fundamentally different, Christ has to be in you. Paul really expects the Christian." To live in the power of the Spirit and in the presence of Christ. In verse 11 it says, but if the Spirit of Him, that's the Holy Spirit. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In what way? Not just in a salvific way but in a redemptive way. You see, the truth is, I didn't dye my hair this color. It really is this color. As I look in the mirror, life is changing right before my eyes. 30 becomes 40, and 40 becomes 50, and 50 becomes, well, we can stop right there. But for those who are north of 6-0 or north of 7-0, 
The Bible says that the outward person begins to waste away, but the inward person can be renewed day by day. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. We have a new spiritual existence. We have a new spiritual energy. And the energy isn't just an influence. It's a person. The world of the believer is then contrasted with the unbeliever and the make-believer. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. We have the mindset and our focus is on the spirit of God. By the way, you should ask yourself that question. What is it that I desire? What is it that I want? Do you want the sincere milk of the word? Do you crave prayer and fellowship and Bible study? Do you desire righteousness instead of selfishness? Are you driven to do what's right instead of what's wrong? Do you experience a real, personal, vibrant, living relationship with Jesus? Or are you preoccupied with me, myself, and I? The unbeliever and the make-believer are marked by the absence of joy. They're disconnected from peace. They're disconnected from hope. The unbeliever finds something special in verse 11. Because it says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus... From the dead, tucked away in that little phrase, tucked away is the personal name of Jesus. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead speaks of a time of weakness, of utter dependence, the real Jesus in history, the real Jesus in time and space, the real Jesus was crucified and was placed in a tomb. The real Jesus literally died. And the historical Jesus rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that lives inside of each and every one of you who know and love Jesus. So what if our bodies are dead because of sin? Paul says then God will raise you from the dead. By the way, the word mortal, he will give life to your mortal body. Remember what a mortal body is. A mortal body is the opposite of immortal. It's everything that's subject to death. In the Bible, in the Bible, it always applies to your body, your physical body. And so he talks about the the victorious Christian And in verses 12 through 17, we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we come back. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We are debtors not to the flesh. You have no obligation whatsoever to your sinful nature to obey its urges. That's what this text says. There are Christians who quite literally do not believe this text. There are Christians who say, I have to do this. 
I am an addict. I am this. I am that. I'm the adult child of an alcoholic. I'm the adult child of a drug addict, sex addict. You fill in whatever addiction you want to put in. The Bible doesn't deny that there aren't powerful compulsions. That there are deep problems and difficult issues that each and every one of us face. The Bible says that the child of God is not under obligation to obey those compulsions. The addict responds, you don't understand. The addiction is too powerful. The trauma too great. The perversion and the brokenness too complete. The compulsion is way too entrenched. But if this verse is true, and I believe that it is true, then why do so many people live in a chronic lifestyle of compulsive and addictive behavior? Paul says, Christian, there's a real, supernatural, energetic power that doesn't just give you the legal right to go forward. It will give you the existential ability to obey. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Look what it says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death The deeds of the body, you will live. The literal translation reads, if you live according to the flesh, that means everything that you are apart from Christ. Here's what it says literally. If you live according to the flesh, you're about to die. That's what it says. If you continue to live a life apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the promises of God, apart from the promises of Christ, if you continue to live that way, you're about to die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you turn from it and its evil deeds, you will live. Paul issues a warning. It's a gigantic red light. Unbeliever, you can heed the warning. Believer, You can heed the warning. Paul lists some of the holy obligations. We're obligated to stop engaging in a life of sin and rebellion. And then since the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit live inside of you, you're free to obey. And when you allow the Holy Spirit of life to be also the spirit of death, in what sense? The power whereby you put to death the deeds of the body, you get to live. And in the four verses that close out the section, he gives you four closing thoughts. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. When you're led by the Holy Spirit, look what it says again, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? The word led means to show the way. To guide, to point out. Do you remember the song? He came from heaven to earth to show the way. We can be led by the Spirit. We can make ourselves available to the Spirit's leading. How is that possible? 
How can I be sure that it's the Spirit's leading and not my foolish imagination or your foolish opinion or your foolish imagination? Let me give you some simple guidelines, I hope. I hope they're simple. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that would grieve the Spirit. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? If it's the Holy Spirit, it's not going to lead you to grieve the Spirit. Does it make sense to you that the Holy Spirit would ask you to dishonor the Father? Does that make sense to you? Can you imagine a spirit that says, dishonor God and disobey the Son? Does that make sense to you? Whatever the leading of the Spirit means, the leading of the Spirit has something to do with not grieving the Spirit, without, without dishonoring the Father. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever get tired of pointing people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will never, ever get tired of pointing people away from sin. So, if whatever is leading you and guiding you is pointing you away from Jesus and towards sin, you know that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to peace in Psalm 23.2, to righteousness in Psalm 23.3, to freedom in God in Galatians 5.1. The Holy Spirit leads us to repentance in Romans 2.4. The Holy Spirit will lead you to safety in Psalm 106 verse 9. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will lead you towards the truth. And so you know it's not, it's not, it's not the Holy Spirit. If it's leading you away from the truth, if it's leading you away from the Bible, if it's leading you away from Jesus. In verse 15, it says, for you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again for fear. Or you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we can have a close, intimate walk with God the Father. Free from fear. You don't have to be afraid. What do you suppose most people are afraid of? I'm going to suggest to you that the fear is in two broad categories. The first fear is the fear that God will reject you. Can you imagine where you hear everything that I've just said? And you go, okay. I believe you. I believe you. I believe that that the Bible is true. I believe that, that God is the Father. I believe that Jesus is the Lord. And I believe that I can experience life and love and and grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. And a voice says, But God won't take you. (laughs) That He'll accept nice people who go to church. But He has to draw the line somewhere. And even though you can fool these people who are sitting around you, you can't fool God. And he knows the truth of just how significantly wicked you are. But let me tell you, this is a healthy fear. Because that healthy fear is the same thing that will motivate you to go apart from God's grace and apart from God's mercy and apart from God's love and apart from God's forgiveness There's no salvation for me. But what Paul writes is that you didn't receive the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the most intimate form of the word daddy. Dad. This is a word that 
Old Testament saints would never use to describe God. This is an amazing intimacy. Prior to Jesus, no human being dared call God their dad. Adoption meant the placement of a son. And by the way, adoption in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, particularly as it's used here in the book of Romans, isn't adoption like in our culture and society. In the ancient world, adoption provided a legal and irrevocable inheritance. You see, in the ancient world of Rome, if you adopted a child, you could never disown that child. Here's what Paul is saying. You become full-fledged sons and daughters with all of the rights that go with being sons and daughters. Some of you may have grown up in a family business And if you grew up in a family business, it might have been that your mother or your father or your grandfather or your grandmother said to you, son, daughter, granddaughter, one day you're going to be a part of this. You see, all of this stuff that we're doing, we're not just doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren. This business is a business that we're building. We're partaking of this together. All of the rights and the benefits are going to one day be yours. When I talk to my children and my grandchildren, I say to them, everything that I have will one day belong to you. And so in verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And you might not have noticed it, but this is the first mention of children in the book of Romans. This is the first time that children show up. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. We have the assurance that we belong to God. And when the Spirit controls our lives, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And look what it says. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. There's a prelude to glory. It's pain and suffering. And note the suffering. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer, look what it says, with him. The things that seem to harm us on the outside are the things that God will sometimes use to change us on the inside And the glory that belongs to Jesus by right will be ours by grace. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords by right. Will you have everything that Jesus has? Well, not exactly. You'll never have worship. It never belonged to you. And it never will. The glory that belongs to Jesus will be yours by grace. What does this mean? Paul invites you to allow the Holy Spirit to control your life. To control your passions. To control your addictions. And one of two things really is happening. You're serving sin. And you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Or you're serving the Holy Spirit. And you're resisting sin. 
C.S. Lewis said, all that we can call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Unquote. And that's true. Life is a search for peace, for joy, for hope. The Bible says that peace and joy and hope is found in Christ and that there will always be a profound absence of peace, a profound absence of joy, a profound absence of hope if you live life disconnected from the Father, detached from the Son, discarding the Holy Spirit. So what makes your life significant? If you answered your home, or if you answered your family, or if you answered your job, then you miss the point. Because your value, the significance of your life, is found in the person of Jesus. This is why Paul would say, my life is hid in Christ. This is why Paul would write that he becomes only that which Jesus wants him to become. That is life on the highest level. And guess what? From here on, He's going to talk about the glorious, the glorious, the glorious deliverance that's just right around the corner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we understand that so many of us opt for life at the lowest level. Lord, it amazes me that up until 1953, there was a piece of, of dirt on the planet Earth that had never been walked on at the top of the Himalaya mountains, Mount Everest, that human beings tried as they might were unable to come to that one pinnacle. They fought and they struggled to find a way all the way to the top. And it's interesting to me that once they got to the top, they only stayed there for 15 minutes and then they went down. And so many people want to come to the top of the mountain. They want to know God and be known by God. They want to experience hope and forgiveness. But they continue to live a life disconnected from forgiveness and disconnected from hope and disconnected from peace. Lord, we know that apart from Jesus, it's impossible to please you. And so, Heavenly Father, again, for the person who is in the foolish pursuit of personal pleasure, Lord, I pray that you would awaken in their heart a deep, deep, deep desire to know you. 
forgiven by you and to walk with you. And so again, Father, I just pray for that person who finds themselves in a dark place, in an empty place, disconnected from light, disconnected from peace, that they would find it in Jesus even now, that they would confess that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior, and that they would experience hope. life at the highest level.